A few years ago, I came across this quote. Non-Christians will not want to become Christians unless there are credible Christians for them to observe. The gospel must first be seen before it can be heard. My friends, there are people on both sides of the stained glass window that are wondering whether or not the Jesus we passionately profess makes a daily difference in our living. This is a topic to which Paul gives his attention as he comes to the concluding paragraphs of Ephesians. This morning, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. I'll begin reading at verse 15. We'll read through chapter 6, verse 9. This morning, I want to talk to you about being spiritually intoxicated. Being spiritually intoxicated. Ephesians chapter 5 We'll begin at verse 15. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body." For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Our passage begins with this statement. 
Be very careful then how you live. Paul offers three contrasts. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity. You and I only have a fixed number of dollars and days. So, Paul says, we ought to use all of our time and all of our resources to do our very best before the Lord. Do not be unwise, but be wise. For many of us, the struggle in life is not going to be between doing good and doing evil. The struggle is going to be doing what is best versus doing what is merely good. Paul says in order to differentiate, you must be wise. The wisdom that he speaks about is not intellectual wisdom. It is moral excellence. He is piggybacking on what he's been talking about to the Ephesian church, about how we are to be individuals who are morally and ethically pure before a watching world. So he says, live as wise, not unwise. The second contrast is we ought to not live foolishly, but as those who understand the will of God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool lives life as if God doesn't exist. But the wise child of God, the child of light, the genuine, authentic believer is one who not only wants to know the will of God, but do the will of God. So don't be foolish acting as if God doesn't exist, but you live your life with obsessive obedience, desiring to not only know God's will, but to do it faithfully. But then he has a third contrast. This is the contrast that dominates and dictates the entire passage. Do not get drunk on wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. The analogy is true in the 21st century, and it carries as much power in the punch as it does in the first century. Paul is saying, do not be overwhelmed by the spirits, with a little s, But you be overwhelmed with the Spirit of God with a capital S. Don't be filled with wine, but be filled with the Spirit of God. One of the common pagan deities that was worshipped in Ephesus was Dionysius. It was believed that whenever anybody was inebriated, they were possessed by the Spirit of Dionysius. And so if anyone ever attended a worship service at that pagan temple, then being drunk was part and parcel with being in that worship service. And so when you had a bunch of drunk individuals there worshiping Dionysius, the worship was loud and loose. And so people, whenever they walked past, they knew that worship was going on in that pagan temple because they could hear it and they could see it. It was obvious that people were physically inebriated. And some people thought, well, if that's good for Dionysius, maybe Jesus would like it too. And so they introduced the consumption of alcohol in the worship service saying, hey, let our worship be loose and lively and loud. But Paul comes along and says, no, no, no. Don't be filled with wine, but be filled with the Spirit of God. Not physical intoxication, but spiritual intoxication. You understand that when someone is physically inebriated it affects speech and self-image speech is slurred images puffed up now not that any of you know what it's like to be physically drunk but you've probably read about it 
You've probably seen others. You may have even watched a movie from time to time and somebody was drunk in there. Not that any of you know anything personally about being physically intoxicated, but I can tell you that in college I had more than one roommate who knew what it was to consume a little bit too much alcohol. And when my roommates would do that, oh, they would act as if they were supermen, as if they could whip anybody, and they tried to do it most times. There was one night in particular that one of my roommates came back a little tipsy, inebriated. He came back, and for some reason he got upset, and he decided to drive his fist through a concrete block wall. And I thought to myself, that's not going to go well. The next morning he woke up, he said, what did I do? I said, brother, you wouldn't even believe me if I told you what you tried to do. Because when somebody is physically intoxicated, it affects their speech. It affects how they view themselves and how they view other people. With that same principle in mind, Paul says, don't be physically intoxicated, but be spiritually intoxicated so that you speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs on your lips, with thanksgiving protruding out of your mouth. This is countercultural. This is not how people talk to one another. They talk very uh, arrogantly. They, they talk very selfishly. But Paul says in the church, we ought to be spiritually intoxicated so that it affects even how we speak to one another. So we speak to each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It even affects the way we regard ourselves and one another. For Paul says in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That word submit is a military term. It means to arrange under It means to relinquish rights. You and I would say to lay down the rights card. This is what Paul says, that when we are spiritually intoxicated, we willingly submit one to the other. If you want a working definition of spiritual intoxication, I would simply suggest this, that it is living your daily life overwhelmingly influenced by the Spirit of God. That spiritual intoxication. Living your everyday life overwhelmingly influenced by the Spirit of God. It's at this moment that Paul drops a pebble in a pond. And you begin to see the ripple effects of this gospel. In our passage, he starts in the home. He says that if you are spiritually intoxicated, it will be a relationship makeover. Every relationship will be altered and changed. Every uh, speech that you give, every activity that you have, every relationship in your life will be drastically influenced and overwhelmingly impacted by the Spirit of God. So he drops the pebble of the gospel in the pond and he starts in the home And in verses 22 to 33, he speaks about that husband-wife relationship. And then in chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, he speaks about the parental relationship between parents and children, children and parents. And then he speaks of the relationships in the workplace when he gets to chapter 6, verses 5 to 9, when he speaks to slaves and masters. Don't miss what he's doing. He is saying that if you are spiritually intoxicated, it will affect every relationship that you have. So wives, submit to your husband as unto the Lord. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
Just as the church willfully submits to Christ, so wives, you are to willfully submit to your husbands. And husbands, just as Christ demonstrated his love for the church by dying for her, you must demonstrate your love for your spouse, even if it comes to the point of shedding your own blood for her. In the same way that Christ treats the church, husbands are to treat their wives. And in the same way that the church reveres and reverences Christ, so wives are to respect their husbands. I realize that for some listening to my voice, submission has become a dirty word. It sounds so antiquated. It sounds so old-fashioned. And yet I want to tell you this morning that what Paul describes here is the effect of the Spirit of God upon the child of God. That when the Spirit of God so overwhelms the child of God, it influences and impacts even that most fundamental, especially that most fundamental uh, husband-wife relationship. When Paul instructs the wives to submit to their husband, to the godly leadership of their husband, he is not describing something that is coerced, or forced husbands let me let you in on a little secret if you have to tell your wife you the head of the household you ain't the head of the household if you have to demand it if you have to inform them if you have to uh, command it then you ain't got it this is something that is given unto you this is willful submission the reason I know it's not coerced is because Paul's language is different when he speaks to the wife versus when he speaks to the child and speaks to the servant. In chapter 6, verse 1, it's an imperative command. Children, obey your parents. In chapter 6, verse 5, it's an imperative command. Servants, obey your masters. But here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, it is not an imperative. It's an instruction. This is what he says, you should submit to your husbands as it is right in the Lord. This is what you ought to do. You ought to willfully submit to the godly leadership of your man. You ought to submit unto him as he follows the Lord, you follow his lead. This is a great instruction, but it's not an imperative command. So Paul is not saying this is something that is coerced or forced. It is a willful laying down of rights. It's willfully arranging oneself under. And husbands, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. He does spend more time describing what that love looks like versus what submission looks like. He gets down to verse 31 and he quotes from Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Oh, that's quoted in just about every wedding that you've ever attended, and rightfully so, for it was quoted at the very first wedding ever instituted. It is God who is the minister, and he is there in the lush Garden of Eden. The angels are providing the prenuptial music, and there's Adam and Eve, a match made in heaven. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. There is leaving and there is cleaving as they cling together to each other unto the Lord. What a beautiful picture. But the picture of beauty is tarnished just a couple of verses later for the serpent, the craftiest of all animals, came up and said to Eve, you know God is holding out on you. Why don't you eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? 
Now, this was the one tree that the Lord had instructed to Adam and to Adam's wife, you must not eat from this fruit. Any other tree in the garden, you're free to eat from, but not this one. Do not eat the fruit of this tree in the middle of the garden. And wouldn't you know, that's the tree that the serpent goes to and says, hey, God's holding out on you. Why don't you eat this and enjoy? And Eve saw that the food was good to eat and it was desirable, so she took some and she ate it. This is problematic for a couple of reasons. Number one, she is blatantly disobeying the instructions of God. But secondly, there's nowhere in that Genesis correspondence where it's ever even hinted or implied that Eve thought to herself, this is a pretty big deal. Maybe I should check with Adam first. There's nowhere where she submits to the godly leadership of her husband, Adam. There's nowhere where she says, you know what, this is a pretty big decision to make. I mean, I think I'm pretty clear that God said, don't do this. I wonder what Adam thinks. And nowhere in the description is there ever even a hint that she consulted or thought about asking Adam. She took it and she ate. Where was Adam in all of this? I tell you this much. He wasn't taming a wild tiger. He wasn't lassoing a giraffe. He wasn't riding an elephant galloping through the Garden of Eden. No, he was right there beside Eve. The Bible says that Eve took the fruit, she ate it, and then she gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Adam responded in stupid silence. He didn't say a word. There's nowhere in the description where Adam checks himself and says, now, wait a minute, this is not a good idea. Darling, can we come have a little powwow? Can we just come have a little talk about this before we kind of dive in into this disobedience? Can can we just stop? There's nowhere where Adam ever takes the, the role of the leader of the home. He sits there in stupid silence and he abdicates his role as the leader of the home and he takes the fruit and chomps down on it and he eats it. Their eyes are open. They realize that they're naked. They're ashamed. So they hide. Adam, where are you? God asked. Adam says, I, I, was, I was hiding because I was afraid. God asked the question, Adam, where are you? Not for God's sake, but for Adam's sake. Adam, have you eaten from the forbidden fruit? How do you know that you're naked? Why would you be hiding from me? And in response, God did only what God could do. This holy God cannot tolerate sin, and so he cursed the tree and the serpent. He should have cursed Adam and Eve. The grace of the Genesis account is that God does not curse Adam and Eve, not in the same way that he curses the tree, the ground, and the serpent. But he does punish Adam and Eve. He has to. God is intolerant to sin. Sin has to be dealt with. So he punishes his prized creation. To Eve, the Lord says, I will increase your pain in childbearing. Mothers, can you imagine that? That if it had not been for that disobedience, there would be no pain in childbearing. No epidurals needed. 
And some of you are like really heroic women and you've gone through that childbearing thing without any anesthesia. Wow. (laughs) If it had not been for Eve, no pain in childbearing. The Lord also said part of the punishment is that your desire will be for your husband. That desire is not sexual desire. A wife's sexual desire for her husband is not punishment. Now, husbands, this is not the time for you to elbow your wife and say, are you listening to him? (laughs) It's not the time for you to start taking notes. You ain't never taken a note before. Don't start taking notes now. (laughs) But clearly, the, the word says your desire will be for your husband. Many have thought that to be sexual desire. It is not sexual desire. Sexual desire is not a punishment. It is a blessing unto the Lord. What the Lord means when he says your desire will be for your husband, the word desire means to seek control. One of the effects of the fall is that Eve would then seek to usurp the leadership authority of her husband and seek to control him. The punishment then turned to Adam. And the Lord said to Adam, by the sweat of your brow, You will toil and labor. You will have to work hard all the days of your life. You'll return to the ground, for to dust you are and to dust you shall return. The effect of the fall for Adam is that he was going to spend all of his life overwhelmed by work. To be negligent in his leadership responsibility to his wife and to his children, all because he's simply trying to provide for the family. You do see the effect of the fall and how it manifests itself even in marriages today where a wife tries to usurp the the authority of her husband by seeking to control not only him but every decision that is made in the house and you find a lot of men who just abdicate their role as a spiritual leader and they give themselves over to being overwhelmed by their work and they defend it by saying I'm just trying to provide for my family and they abdicate their spiritual leadership role in the home. This, my friends, is the effect of sin. Wives trying to usurp the authority of their husbands and husbands responding in stupid silence and not saying anything or reacting the other extreme and trying to coerce and force submission in the house. Neither of which is what God described. Oh, we've got a mess. And all of this is because of the effect of sin. So that's why at the very end of our passage, in chapter 5, verse 33, on the section of husband and wife, Paul gives this advice. Every husband is to love his wife. And every wife is to respect her husband. This is profound. The fundamental desire of every wife is to be loved by her husband. And the fundamental desire of every husband is to be respected by his wife. I've had more than one conversation, husbands and wives who come to me, and at the end of the day, at the end of the conversation, in essence, that's what she's saying. She's saying, I want my man to love me. 
I want to know that, that I, I am loved by him and cherished by him. I want to submit to the godly leadership of my husband. And so long as I know that my husband loves me and is following God wholeheartedly and every man who comes and speaks, they will in essence say, I just want more than anything else for my wife to respect me. Paul is tapping in on something that is so fundamental. Every wife wants to be loved and cherished by her husband. And every husband wants to be respected by his wife. So sometimes people will say to me, um, I, I'll love her as long as she's lovable. I'll respect him as long as he's respectable. But my friends, don't the pagans do that? Even pagans that get married, they know how to love when the wife is lovable and how to respect when the husband is respectable. But if you are spiritually intoxicated, it is so countercultural, it goes against the grain of how we interact one with the other. We say to our wives, wife, I'm gonna love you even on the day when you're not very lovable. And the, and the wife says to the husband, husband, I'm gonna respect you even on the days when you are not very respectful. My friends, this is spiritual intoxication. When you've got wives and husbands that are treating each other the way they ought to be treated, not the way they deserve to be treated, my friends, that is spiritual intoxication. It's living your daily life overwhelmingly influenced by the Spirit of God. The ripple effect of the gospel goes on, not only in the marital relationship, but also in the parental relationship. Children, obey your parents, for this is right. This is one of the top ten. It's the fifth. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment that comes with a promise, so it will go well with you, and you will live long days in the land. Children, obey your parents. Now, what's so countercultural about this is that Paul identified the children. In that day and time, children were seen as one step up above property. I mean, children were supposed to be seen but not heard. And a child could be disregarded. It was Seneca, who was a famous Roman statesman, who said, we plunge a knife into a sick cow. We strangle a mad dog. And any child that is born weak or deformed we drown. Sounds cold-hearted, doesn't it? Sounds vicious, doesn't it? It wasn't uncommon for in those days, if a child was born and you didn't want that child, literally, that child was thrown onto the trash heap. In fact, the church in the first century had a great ministry of adoption. They would go by and they would rescue those children in the trash. They would rescue those babies that were thrown on the, on the trash heap and they would take them as belonging to themselves. Why? Because they knew that God had adopted them into his family and they needed to adopt others into their family. God had adopted me as trash, so I am called to adopt other people regarded as trash. Oh, my friends, this is spiritual intoxication. I mean, this is countercultural. This doesn't make any sense unless... You're overwhelmingly influenced by the Spirit of God. What Paul does, Paul identifies the children. Children, obey your parents. Students, obey your parents. This is good. It's a command. It's an imperative. It's an imperative with a promise that it may go well with you. And 
I don't know that you stop obeying your parents at any point of your life. It's just that obedience looks different. Right now, students, you do what your parents tell you to do, but as you get older and become an adult and maybe a husband or a wife who have children, then you heap honor and glory upon your parents by the way you live. I today am striving to heap glory and honor upon my mom and dad by the decisions that I make. And I think I'll continue to do that all throughout my life as I try to care for them, for they have cared for me. Children, obey your parents. This is right. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. The word exasperate means provoke them to anger. Once again, a father could do whatever he wanted to to the children. Nobody would reprimand him. There were no children advocacy groups in the first century in the Roman Empire. If a dad wanted to use his child as a punching bag, that dad could use his child as a punching bag. And nobody would call him on the carpet. And Paul says, your children are not objects for you to vent your frustration You're to train your children in the way of the Lord. Dad, you're to instruct your children. Don't leave that to some other teacher. Don't don't leave that to the responsibility of of even your wife. Dad, you, you. Train up your children the way they ought to go. Paul is being countercultural. He's being revolutionary. He is being radical in how the family operates. Why? Because we are spiritually intoxicated, living daily life, overwhelmingly influenced by the Spirit of God. Now, before we come down too hard on parenting in the first century and regarding children as just trash, can I remind you that in our civilized culture, Every day there are thousands upon thousands of abortions merely because that child is unwanted. People say, that's the only option that I have, abortion. I I, I didn't plan this. I don't want this. It's just merely trash. And so in an abortion, what happens? That living child is thrown onto the trash heap. So before we come down too hard on the parenting skills of the first century, maybe we need to fall on our faces before the Lord and say, God, have mercy upon us. Paul says that if you're spiritually intoxicated, it will affect your marriage. It will also affect your parenting. It will affect you in the workplace. In chapter 6, verses 5 to 9, he addresses the issue of slaves and masters. Some people have come to this passage and said, why is Paul talking about this? Why is he endorsing slavery? He should be slamming slavery. Let me tell you, he's not endorsing slavery. He's not uh, prescribing how things ought to be. He's describing how things are. He understands that a third of the workforce in first century Roman Empire were made up of servants. Some of those servants were just working off a debt. There were no banks that you and I would be familiar with. If you had to borrow money from somebody, you borrow money from a rich guy. And sometimes you couldn't pay it back. And one of the ways you paid it back was to be his indentured servant. It was to be his slave. Now, other times, there were slaves that were property. If children were one step above property, I promise you that most servants, all servants, were regarded merely as property. If you broke your plow or you broke a shovel, what did you do? You went out and got a new plow and a new shovel. If your servant was broken, what would you do? You discard him and go purchase another one. So don't misunderstand me. It wasn't just a wonderful experience. 
but a third of the workforce were servants. When they came together for church, there were both masters and servants in the congregation. And there were, it was very tempting to take the socioeconomic status outside the church and import it into the church so that slave owners would then, even in the church, tell other servants what to do and where to go. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Servants, you work for your master as if you're working for the Lord. For don't forget that his master is the same as your master. This is why Christians ought to have the best work ethic in the workplace. You're not working for the company, you're working for Christ. You're not, you're not laboring uh, for the boss, you're laboring for the Lord. So whatever you do, you do it unto the Lord. Whether you're writing a letter, whether you're making a sale, whether you're traveling here, traveling there, wherever you go, whatever you do in the marketplace, whatever you do in, uh, in the work uh, environment, you are working as unto Christ. So Christians ought to be the hardest workers on the planet. And if you are a CEO, if you're a small business owner, if you're the boss, if you're in middle management, if you have other people working for you, you treat them with dignity. Isn't that what Paul says to the masters? You treat those people with dignity, for don't you ever forget that their master is your master, and both of your master, he's in heaven, he's God himself. So treat each other with respect. Once again, counter-cultural. Nobody would do this. This went against the grain. This is a description of spiritual intoxication. This is how we are to live. Paul says, in light of who God is, in light of the grace that's been given to you, in light of the salvation you've experienced, this is how you must live. You must be spiritually intoxicated. You know what it is to be physically intoxicated. Don't be filled with much wine, but you'll be filled with the Spirit of God, capital S, so that your speech is affected and your self-image is affected and the way you, the way you uh, perceive other people is even affected. So as Christians... Let our marriages be spiritually inebriated. May we be spiritually intoxicated when it comes to our parenting. Spiritually, may we just be wasted at work. When people hear us talk, may our speech be so slurred with the Savior that they get confused on whether that's you talking or Jesus talking. As people observe your walk, may you stagger under the influence of the Spirit of God. I don't want your eyes to be bloodshot, but I do want your life to be bloodstained. When people talk to you, when people talk to me, may they smell Jesus on our breath. Spiritual intoxication. Don't miss the imagery. It is stamped all over the very end of this Ephesian letter. Don't miss the imagery. Because Paul understands that non-Christians will not want to become Christians unless there are credible Christians for them to observe. The gospel must first be seen before it can be heard. So this morning, you live a life of spiritual intoxication. If there's a drunk on the street, you know it, don't you? 
You can tell how loud he is, how she's acting around other people. You can tell it's obvious, it's visible, it's undeniable if somebody is physically intoxicated. You can't deny it. And Paul says if somebody is spiritually intoxicated, you can't deny it. It's evident, it's obvious. So live your daily life overwhelmingly influenced by the Spirit of God. Maybe today you need to pray for your marriage. It's not what it ought to be. Husbands, you don't love your wife the way Christ loved the church. And wives, respect? Are you kidding me? You don't respect your husband the way Christ respects the church. Maybe you need to pray for your relationship with your children. Your child is wayward. Some some of it's because of the way you treated him, the way you treated her. It's broken. Maybe you're a child and you think to yourself, how in the world can I honor mom and dad? Maybe it's a problem at work. It's a coworker. It's a boss. He's heavy-handed. She is overwhelming. Maybe it's somebody who works alongside you. It's a problem. It's an issue. Today, will you take a tall drink of the Spirit of God? Be spiritually intoxicated. Maybe you need to come and pray. Kneel before the Lord. Say, God, help me. Help me to live my daily life overwhelmingly influenced by your Spirit. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. There are some marriages that need mending. There are some parental relationships that are severed. There are some uh, relationships in the workplace that are not what they ought to be. And Father, on this day, I pray that you have your freedom in this worship service. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen.